legally speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, always good to be here. Absolutely. What are or what is on the agenda for today? Well, I think the first case on the agenda is a good example of why practicing law is not often boring. <laughs> uh, and uh, the uh, case itself involved uh, an application by a woman uh, who was a surrogate mother uh, to try to get a uh, interim order to have access to a four-year-old girl uh, whom she gave birth to. Uh, the uh, background of that application, though, I, I must say, is really quite astonishing. Uh, and uh, this is the uh, fact pattern. Um, a, a couple who got married in 2009 was having trouble uh, conceiving a child and was uh, making various efforts in that regard, trying in vitro fertilization and other uh, things. Uh, and then they met uh, the uh, woman who eventually was the surrogate uh, mother for uh, their four, now four-year-old daughter. They met in 2014. Now, here's where things start to get interesting. The surrogate mother uh, claims that uh, she had an affair with the husband uh, in the uh, original couple and, in fact, claims that she had become pregnant on two occasions uh, as a result of that affair, uh, but uh, claims that she had terminated those pregnancies uh, and had befriended uh, the mother in the couple, the wife. Hmm. Um, she claimed uh, then uh, that uh, she wanted to uh, help this couple uh, become closer uh, and volunteered to uh, become a surrogate so that they could have a child together. Uh, and... Uh, the, there was a surrogacy agreement uh, entered into, uh, setting out uh, how that uh, would work. That's a good idea. Um, uh, but uh, And then eventually a, a uh, young girl was born, apparently happy and healthy, so that's wonderful news. Mm -hmm. uh, and for a little while, things seemed to go okay. Uh, the uh, surrogate uh, mother had some interactions with the uh, child for the first couple of years, uh, but then began uh, insisting on things like a written schedule of when she could see the child uh, and uh, began uh, demanding more money from the couple. Um, she was paid some $40,000 uh, for surrogacy expenses, uh, but was then trying to make a claim for $100,000 from the couple. The result was that the relationship between the couple, the parents of the uh, child, uh, and the uh, surrogate uh, deteriorated and broke down to the point where they said you can't see the uh, the young girl anymore. Oh, uh, hence the court case that we're now dealing with. Yes, um, and things became have become more interesting because the surrogate um, mother now claims that uh, the child was not conceived by means of a uh, home artificial insemination kit, but rather claims that the child was naturally conceived with the father. Hmm. Um, which, and so on that basis, uh, she's uh, applying uh, to become listed as the parent of the child, despite the surrogacy agreement uh, and the fact that uh, everyone seemed to be operating on the basis uh, that she was acting as a uh, surrogate. Mm -hmm. um, and so now uh, the court is trying to uh, both eventually unwind that issue, which is going to be scheduled for a uh, two-week, 14-day trial, uh, to try to sort out uh, that issue of sort of how was this child conceived, who are its parents, what is the meaning of this surrogacy agreement, uh, and what was going on between uh, the father and this woman. 
but in the interim, uh, what the court has had to uh, deal with is an application by the woman who was the surrogate mother under Section 59 of the Family Law Act. And that section of the Act, people should be aware of, it's a section that allows uh, people, a person, to make an application uh, to have um, uh, access to a child, to spend time with the child. Mm. And that section can actually be used by various people, including uh, grandparents, for example, right? Mm-hmm. It's fairly broad. Uh, but when a court is faced with that kind of an application uh, to allow access, the, the way the court is required to approach it uh, is to always ask, what is in the best interest of the child? And so the assessment by the court is not an assessment of, you know, what about the surrogacy agreement and how was the child conceived and what about the 100000 or the $40,000? It's always analyzed from the perspective of, despite all those trials and tribulations, what's best for this four-year-old girl? Yes. And on that analysis, at least on the interim uh, uh, basis, the court has decided that uh, the parents of the child, uh, pursuant to the surrogacy agreement, uh, uh, will continue to care for her, and the uh, woman who was the uh, surrogate uh, mother uh, will not have access uh, to the child, uh, at least subject uh, to the uh, time when there's going to be a full trial on what exactly was her role? Was she the surrogate uh, with the artificial insemination kit, or did she have an affair? And is that how uh, this child came about? And on that ground, on that basis, her claims aren't completely um, uh, without any foundation because it would appear that the father acknowledges having an affair with the woman, uh, but claims that that only occurred after the birth of the child. Uh, and so uh, this is the naughty fact pattern uh, that uh, uh, a judge is ultimately going to need to unwind. But in the interim, uh, on that test of what's in the best interest of the child, uh, they're not going to allow the uh, surrogate uh, mother to recommence uh, a relationship with the child. And so I must say, as I read the thing, it, it is an example of how despite all of everyone's best efforts to, for example, when you're trying to come up with what the Family Law Act is to say about how things are to be uh, organized for surrogacies and agreements and who's a parent and so on, uh, human affairs are just so endlessly variable and a good example uh, of uh, why on a daily basis I am uh, not falling asleep at my desk. No, no. We'll have to keep an eye on what happens to a little four-year-old girl uh, and this uh, trio uh, and uh, eventually, I guess, we'll get some legal answer to uh, who are her parents. <laughs> Absolutely. I want to take our first break here. Legally Speaking continues in just a moment. Up next, vandalism to statues and totem poles. How does that potentially intersect with the Criminal Code of Canada? Michael gives us an analysis right after this. We return to Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. The topic of vandalism targeting statues, totem poles, churches, and other structures certainly in the forefront of the public discourse recently, Michael. How does the criminal code treat such things? Uh, not well. No, say <laughs> we... Um... I mean, there are specific offenses, of course, uh, just kidding, for those yeah. uh, particular things, right? There'd be arson and uh, mischief by damaging property. But there are a couple of other particular sections of the criminal code that would relate to both of those things, which I think uh, listeners uh, uh, should be aware of. Um, one of the sections which would have application 
at least with respect to uh, what apparently happened to the Captain Cook statue, uh, would be Section 21 uh, of the Criminal Code. And Section 21 of the Criminal Code deals with the concept of parties to offenses. Mm -hmm. And what that section says is that everyone is a party to an offense, therefore can be convicted of it, if they either A, actually commit it, or B, a person does or admits to do anything for the purpose of aiding any person to commit it or abets any person in committing it. Mm. And so that could include encouraging somebody to commit an offense, helping them commit an offense, um, doing something or not doing something for that purpose. Uh, and so in other contexts, you can imagine, let's say, for example, there's a bank robbery. One person goes in with the gun and mask while another person sits outside revving up the car for the getaway. Mm-hmm. Both people uh, are uh, potentially subject to being convicted of robbery. The person in the car is guilty on the basis that they are assisting uh, the person as the getaway driver or keeping lookout or doing anything of that sort. Mm. Um, and so, well, the criminal law doesn't attach to people who are uh, passively doing nothing for no particular purpose, right? And there are some notorious cases involving circumstances where you've got somebody engaged in some criminal conduct you don't have, generally speaking, an obligation to go over and intervene to stop it, right? Mm-hmm. If you yeah. see somebody robbing a bank, you're not legally obliged to run over and try to tackle them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is a different thing from if a person who's doing something for the purpose uh, of assisting somebody uh, or abetting them or encouraging them uh, to commit a crime. Uh, and so uh, that will be a, an interesting one, I think, to watch uh, Ultimately, if there are people who are arrested with respect to the uh, mischief to the statue, Mm -hmm. uh, because you could wind up being uh, convicted of that, even if you're not somebody who was tugging on the rope, uh, if you were doing something to assist with it, right? So Mm -hmm. if you were trying to cover the person or aid them or help them in some way, uh, you could wind up being convicted as a party to the offense. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other section, which would have application potentially to Uh, All of the things you've mentioned, Uh uh, the burning of churches, uh, the statue, uh, and the totem pole fire, um, is Section 718.2 of the Criminal Code. And in particular, uh, the section part of 718.2, which is a section dealing with um, things that are required to be considered by a judge when sentencing somebody. Um, And that section sets out Um, things which can uh, uh, increase or reduce the uh, uh, potentially appropriate sentence. And the first series of things listed there, several of them would be potentially applicable to all three of these things. Uh, And that includes this. Um, If there's evidence that an offense was motivated by bias, prejudice, or hatred based on race, national or ethnic origin, language, color, religion, sex, age, mental or physical disability, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression, or any other similar factors. And so uh, if there was a uh, conviction, for example, for burning down a church, there would be a compelling argument that uh, that would be motivated by uh, bias or hatred uh, or prejudice with respect to religion, right? Hmm. Uh, Or similarly with respect to race, right? If you had somebody who said, look, I'm going to uh, target totem poles uh, and uh, burn them down, 
there may well be uh, some evidence that uh, that activity was motivated uh, based on uh, uh, racial prejudice. Um, the Captain Cook statue would be an interesting one as well on the, analyzing that section. Yes. Because, of course, he died some 88 years before Confederation occurred. Yeah. Um, and so the sort of common denominator there, I suppose, would be his national origin, right? Mm. Or European, I suppose. Mm. Um, and so it would be, it'll be interesting to see if there are convictions for any of those things, a church totem pole or statue, um, how uh, a uh, court uh, would uh, apply those particular provisions of 718.2 uh, in determining whether there was evidence that any of those things were motivated uh, by any of the uh, listed or similar factors. Uh, and if so, uh, the criminal code uh, requires that a uh, judge treat those as uh, aggravating uh, factors when determining what the appropriate uh, sentence would be. How common do we see prosecutions of this nature? Well, the interesting thing about that particular part of 718.2 um, is that it wouldn't even necessarily be a specific prosecution under that section. Hmm. It could be uh, any offense in the criminal code, let's say, for example, an assault, right? Hmm. If you had somebody convicted of an assault, you wouldn't necessarily specify that it was an assault contrary to 718.2. But if you had a conviction for an assault, uh, and uh, then the, uh, if the Crown was able to make a submission to the judge uh, that there was evidence that the motivation for whatever the offense might be, the assault, the mischief, the arson, uh, whatever it was, uh, was motivated by, any, by bias, prejudice, or hate based on any of those listed things or other similar factors, right? If you had an assault which was motivated by racial hatred, um, that is a, a enumerated aggravating uh, factor uh, on sentencing. And so if there was evidence that that's why somebody committed an assault, you would expect that the sentence for the same assault, for the same uh, offender, right, yes. uh, would be greater uh, if there was evidence that it was motivated uh, by prejudice or hatred uh, uh, based on any of those things, national, ethnic, origin, religion, sex, etc., etc. I see. Uh, and so uh, that could be potentially applicable to uh, mischief, assault, arson, or any offense under the criminal code. Uh, and so it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, if there is a conviction, whether the Crown relies upon that, uh, and uh, how that uh, eventually winds up being treated, because it is a, uh, a enumerated series of things that a judge must take into consideration. Thank you very much for this detailed analysis, Michael. It's uh, very much appreciated. I'm sure I can speak for myself as well as I suspect many in our audience to better understand these issues because they're very complicated politically and emotionally charged issues. But courts must, of course, analyze and treat each matter on a dispassionate basis. The law is the law, regardless of what public opinion at any given time might be. So it's important that we all understand it. Yeah, and, and I should say there is still a, a wide range of discretion, as there should be, for a judge in determining what an appropriate sentence would be. Yes. Uh, but the various things listed in that provision of the criminal code on sentencing set out things which judges are directed to turn their mind to and to consider when determining what an appropriate sentence would be. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, I think, a, a good thing that those things are uh, drawn to the judge's attention to determine you know, what should be done with it, uh, because for the same activity, uh, it uh, is not unreasonable to conclude that it is indeed aggravating if even the same 
assault or mischief or whatever it might be was, uh, you know, motivated by, you know, for example, uh, you know, racial hatred or something yeah. uh, that is just more uh, uh, serious uh, uh, than uh, if somebody had engaged in perhaps the same activity uh, motivated by nothing, right? You yeah. know, if you had, uh, with respect to the totem pole uh, being uh, burned, you would, I think, treat more seriously uh, if you could uh, prove uh, that a person had burned the totem pole because of racial hatred, uh, as opposed to, I don't know, uh, teenagers who were, you know, just engaged in random uh, chaos or something, yes, right? Yes. Uh, the, uh, the, I think the first scenario, I think most people would agree, is indeed a more serious one and, and deserving of a different uh, response. When we talk about the independence of the judiciary being key to, among other things, maintaining public confidence in our courts, the question of what sort of influence governments should have over, say, altering the jurisdiction of a court can arise. Interesting topic on the docket here with respect to the government of Quebec, unless I'm mistaken. Yes, indeed. Um, and uh, the, uh, what, uh, the fact pattern that the Supreme Court of Canada was uh, weighing in on um, was uh, the uh, Quebec, uh, government of Quebec was trying to increase the monetary jurisdiction of the, what amounts to the Quebec Small Claims Court, right? Hmm. Um, the, the Court of Quebec. And the Court of Quebec uh, would be a, a court created by the province of Quebec it would be the equivalent of the Provincial Court of British Columbia, so something created by the province. Um, and the uh, judges of that court would be appointed uh, by the province, just like the judges of the British Columbia Provincial Court would be appointed by the province. Mm -hmm. um, and what the government of Quebec was trying to do was to increase the uh, jurisdiction of the court to deal with claims of up to $85,000. Uh, and the reason that was... Uh, controversial um, is that there is another category of judges uh, we have in Canada, which are superior court judges. And, and those judges are sometimes referred to as Section 96 court judges uh, because of the section of the uh, Constitution Act, 1867, uh, that uh, provides for them. And judges of that kind, those are the kinds of judges that would be in the B.C. Supreme Court or the Superior Court of uh, all of the provinces, um, are appointed by the federal government rather than the various provincial governments. Yes. And judges of that kind, superior court judges, have some special protection, constitutional protection. Uh, they, they cannot be removed from office um, on good behavior um, other than by resolution of the, uh, by the governor general and an address of the Senate and House of Commons. So they're hard to remove. Um, and Moreover, uh, judges of that kind uh, have a, what would be referred to as inherent jurisdiction to sort of deal with matters even absent a, a specific statutory authority to do so. Hmm. Um, and the reason that those sections are uh, important and how it came into play with Quebec's effort to raise how much money the uh, uh, Quebec Court of Quebec could deal with, claims of a uh, larger kind, is that if provincial governments could simply create um, some other kind of judge and give them all of the authority that a superior court judge would have, the superior court would be meaningless. Oh, of course, right? yes. if you said If you said all claims must be heard before a court of Quebec judge, and we're going to appoint a whole bunch of them, yes. um, Section 96 would become meaningless uh, or virtually meaningless, uh, and 
uh, that's not permitted. The, we've over many years sort of read into this requirement of Section 96 court judges the idea that you can't just transfer all of their powers to other other judges, therefore making them uh, have nothing to do. Yeah. Um, and so the Supreme Court of Canada recently uh, came to the conclusion that the uh, province of Quebec was not permitted uh, to increase the jurisdiction of the Court of Quebec uh, to that extent. But in so doing, the analysis that the Supreme Court of Canada did was a really interesting one. It dealt not only with a historical analysis of, you know, what were the powers of these superior courts at the time of Confederation, which is the start of the analysis. You would look at, you know, what kind of claims did they deal with then, yes. right? And we can't take that all away. But the Supreme Court of Canada also engaged in uh, an analysis of the constitutional history uh, and compromises that uh, produced the um, Confederation in Canada uh, and looked at things like, for example, uh, we have uh, provinces responsible for the administration of justice in the province, but the Constitution provides that judges of this kind are to be appointed federally. And so the Supreme Court of Canada talked about the history of that um, and the fact that it uh, produces a state of affairs where you've got uh, sort of a unified court um, of judges of a similar kind uh, all across the country who have a core responsibility to do things like ensure the rule of law. Uh, and when they are doing so, uh, they enjoy a degree of protection that is absent uh, from judges of other kinds. Yes. Uh, because next week, the Quebec government could choose to do away with the you know, court of Quebec, for yes. example, or yeah. modify what it's allowed to do in a way that would not be permitted uh, for superior court uh, judges. And so it's a really interesting analysis of all of that background. And it has application, immediate application in British Columbia uh, to do with ICBC uh, and the province's effort here to create the no-fault system uh, and to uh, allow people only to have, if they have a dispute with ICBC, the province has tried to uh, force people to go to this thing called the Civil Resolution Tribunal, yes. where all of the people making decisions are on short-term government contracts, the opposite of a Section 96 court judge. Yes. Um, and that was found to be uh, contrary to Section 96 at trial, and that's now being appealed uh, to the Court of Appeal. And so this decision from the Supreme Court of Canada, looking at all that history and finding that Quebec was out of bounds, will likely have uh, implications in British Columbia for whether the British Columbia government is allowed to do what they're trying to do and whether that uh, takes away uh, the core uh, jurisdiction of the B.C. Supreme Court. So it'll be one to watch, and it'll have real application here. Michael Mulligan, appreciate your time and the benefit of your knowledge and insight, as always, legally speaking, on CFAX 1070 during the second half of our second hour every Thursday. Until next week. Always a pleasure. Talk to you then. Talk to you then.